Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, an opportunity to retrieve the human capacity for speculation and imagine futures we want to live instead of surrendering to the seemingly inevitable probability of extinction via extraction. A writer's room that never goes on strike as we write the script for a collaborative future. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, science fiction author and futurist, Madeline Ashby. This is a battle for not just the soul of humanity, but humanity itself as a species. And as a species that generates stories about itself, which is one of the things, as far as we know now, and this may change with future research, it is one of the things that sets us apart from other species on the planet. Madeline is going to help us understand why Hollywood's future belongs to people, not machines. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. We've got this uh, lantern bug problem here in the Northeast United States, certainly in New York, and we got a bunch of emails and little circulars in the mail showing us pictures of these little bugs in various stages of their life cycle. There are these little red bugs that <laughs> came from Asia and eat the wrong stuff. They eat trees and plants that, that we need. They're really invasive. And so we were told you know, to kill these bugs on site. No questions, right? You see one of these, you just kill it and do it and look for them and find them and kill them. And I get it. We got to kill these things because they're 
going to kill other things and in the wrong biome or something. And as I was walking here today to do the show, I saw a mother with this little boy, he must have been six years old, out on the sidewalk, and there were a bunch of those bugs around, and he was stamping on the bugs, and she was saying, do it, kill him, there's one, kill it, kill it, good boy, kill it, kill it. So she turned it into this kind of playful violence, uh, make it a game, I get it, it's this It's this spectacle And I guess it makes it easier on some level to lean into the the killer instinct to uh, take some glee in the annihilation of the other, call up whatever that instinct is. And, And yeah, I get it. They're just bugs and I shouldn't get all worried and upset. But the problem, I guess, is when you think of people or anything else like bugs, the way uh, Pharaoh does in the Bible. He says, you know, these Israelites, they're going to replicate like insects, so I better wipe out the firstborn sons and cull the population of enslaved, indentured Israelites so they don't revolt. So seeing them as insects makes it easier to perpetrate the atrocity. But is the problem that he saw people as insects? Or is it that we treat anything in nature as a a, a dire enemy invader to be exterminated? That we ritualize the killings as fun rather than, at best, a necessary sacrifice of one life form for the sake of another. It's that way we resort to entertainment or spectacle to avoid the difficult stuff that I'm thinking about. Rage or, or heightened emotion, it, it extinguishes the doubt. It, it nullifies the connection, the identification with the other. You don't see the face of the other when you're in that heightened rage spectacle. Let's kill them all, state. They're bugs. You know, and the, the, the video of people cheering at Trump's mugshot, I don't know if you saw this. It turned out it was a hoax, but some friends sent it to me the morning after Trump was indicted down in, uh, in Georgia, and the, the mugshot got released, and he threw it up on Twitter. There's this video of a whole bunch of guys in some big bar or something watching a huge television monitor, and Trump's face comes up the mugshot and they all cheer like crazy crazy you know uh, uh you know quasi violent cheers of adrenaline testosterone pumped men and it turns out it was uh, uh the Lincoln project it's this group of uh kind of wealthy uh never trump republicans who like getting us all um, upset, you know, they think they're triggering the anguish and rage of the left, or or maybe making the right look ridiculous will somehow help the cause of recognizing, you know, the the damage that Trump does to our our nation, our body politic. But the whole thing, the video itself, for me, it's so triggering, right? To see a bunch of white men cheering like that. I mean, some part of my ancestry and my relatives who were killed in the pogroms in Kishinev, you know, that gets triggered and starts vibrating. And I 
don't think these tactics are good. Either you're getting the kid to kill bugs by making it this violent game, or uh, getting people riled up by showing them crazy videos. I'm becoming more convinced of the the Adorno and, and Borsten and Postman understanding of brute government or, or fascism as a direct byproduct of the culture industry. This is what Adorno meant. He's the guy who came up with the term culture industry. And when, when our culture becomes this kind of for-profit mainstream industry uh, that's, that's dependent on sensation and spectacle, it ends up characterizing the way we conduct ourselves um, in civics and in government, that politics becomes a spectacle. It leans toward something like fascism or authoritarianism. It's what uh, Borston was talking about in his book, The Image. He talked about the pseudo-event. And he didn't just mean fake things, but pseudo-events like, like reality TV, when they become replacements for the real events. It's one thing to, to watch and get engrossed in reality television. It's another when your understanding of that fake mirror image of reality TV uh, takes over your understanding of the real world, where you think of elections like uh, uh, American Idol, or you think the characters from the reality shows are real people. They're not. These are scripted. These are fake. These are, are, are setups. Or Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death when he was upset that the news media was becoming an entertainment medium. He asked, why do we have music under, uh, uh, you know, under a major event, right? It's like the, the Ukraine war. Bum, 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 bum. Why does a news station do that except to get your adrenaline pumping and to sell the story as an exciting thing rather than as the facts, to make it into reality TV or a pseudo event or a spectacle or entertainment. Because what happens is the values of entertainment and spectacle end up becoming the values dictating politics and the rest of human affairs. So I get it. In that sense, the Biden show is boring. Trump and excitement and indictments. That's better TV. I will bet you most Trump supporters want Trump indicted. Absolutely. This is the premise for season two of the show. Think of it more like Netflix. What gets you to season two is bum, bum, bum. He's indicted. There's the mugshot. Now we're going to go into the courtroom. Now we're going to have live TV. We're going to watch him defend himself. That's entertainment as politics or politics as entertainment, wanting to see the trial. And when you have a political landscape that works like that, the only thing that matters is your ability to participate in the spectacle. That's why Marjorie Taylor Greene created this fake mugshot of herself to put up on Twitter as well. No, she's not saying that she was indicted. She's saying, I am Spartacus. <laughs> I am Spartacus. 
for those of you who don't know, it's this classic 1960s movie where uh, they want to know who Spartacus is. The Romans are there. They want to know who this guy is. Uh, and everyone stands up and says, they are that person. You know, I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. So they don't know who to arrest. I think the same thing happens in that uh, uh, <laughs> movie about pirate radio in a high school. But more than saying, I am Spartacus and, and take me, what she's really doing is is getting on the TV, making like the star, modeling the behavior. Such is life and politics in an influencer culture or an influencer industry. And this copying and one-upsmanship will always tend toward the extreme, the amplified, the iconic and inflated rather than the human. And I don't think we can afford to continue down this road. It's desocializing, dehumanizing, and ultimately sadistic. It's what allows atrocity to take place. It's the spectacle that prevents us from seeing the face of the other. Take the Roman games, these giant uh, uh spectacles in the Colosseum. They were violent, interspecies, and interracial death matches. And the emperor, we have the documents, the emperor understood these were a way to maintain control over the masses. You keep everyone in a heightened emotional reality in which there's some other deserving of annihilation, whether it's a, a liberal trans-loving elite or a MAGA Trump cheering QAnon. That's how these sensationalist triggers are trying to make us feel and why we must not heed their call. Because down here on Earth, in the real world, there is no other. No one is an insect. No one deserves to be stepped on. Not even the lantern bug. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. There are some people who should have been on this show a long, long time ago, but for whatever reason, I didn't have occasion or a foresight or wisdom or calendar karma to make it happen. 
Futurist, novelist, and scenario developer Madeline Ashby certainly falls into that category. A hero and friend, intellectual star, and loving human. She's dedicated to the role of both speculative fiction and futuring in building out a better future. Our best chances for thriving as one species among many, and how to make a living under increasing precarity. Here's my kind of conversation, the kind that requires me to up my game in real time. My friend, Madeline Ashby. I've loved your work for a whole long time and the stuff you oh, do you. and your, your active futuring and knowledge <laughs> that futuring is not just some kind of prediction of the future, but is propagandizing for particular futures, that there's an activist element to it is so, to me, a stealth activist element apparent to your work that I love and that I've modeled myself. Oh, thank you. So thank you for that. And I was reading a recent piece by you in Wired called Hollywood's Future Belongs to People, Not Machines, which is an extraordinarily team human vibe, of course. But it goes way deeper than just that. And what I wanted to start with is to land on our crowd a quote that for me encapsulates some of the major issues that you bring up Mm -hmm. in this piece, where you say, the unbundling of the American storytelling machine has become the unbundling of the American story. What was once Mm -hmm. a roaring engine of commerce and a siren of soft power is now as fractured as the audience consuming its products. And it's left the entire country and the world that consumes its wares vulnerable. It's like, dang. All right. Dang. <laughs> so there's a lot a lot in there to unbundle, as it yeah. were. Yeah, as it were. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess we'll do the the I want to learn more about you later. But let's start with this 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 because if we're if we both get blown up, this is the important part that society will need. Um in other words, if we're right. doing triage on our conversation, true. let's true, get true, this true. done. Uh, <laughs> um so the unbundling of the of the American storytelling machine is sort of like when we saw the television go from three channels to cable and onward. Yeah, the term bundling versus unbundling comes from Jim Barksdale, who is the CEO of Netscape. Hmm. And he once said that there are two ways to make money in America or money in the world. But there are two ways to make money in America. One is bundling and one is unbundling. And bundling different offerings within a single product to create value and to serve multiple customer segments at the same time. So newspapers used to bundle personal ads, classified ads, news, comics. Expedia, Amazon. Expedia, Amazon, like every major platform that you're familiar with, even to some extent, the supermarket. The idea of the supermarket was a bundle that had not been dealt with until it arrived, kind of like with the advent of places like Harrods and and Mm. Selfridges and, and so on. Like the idea of a department store itself was kind of a bundling of like all of these different shops that used to be that you that you or more likely your staff visited separately all came together under one roof and then they were all bundled together and that at the time was quite unusual Mm. and so we've always seen this happen and then where disruptive like in the classic sort of clayton christensen sense of industry disruption comes along is when a new entrant comes along and unweaves or unravels that bundle by offering something that has not been offered before and offering it cheaply enough that they can 
sort of make a killing on it profit-wise, or as in the case of something like Uber, Twitter, more recent, like uh, WeWork, or something where they can be perceived to be generating enough profit or enough value that they get a high valuation and continued investment, often in the face of continued loss. Right. So some business is not making money, but the financial yeah. people who are speculating on the business are doing just fine. Sort of like the mob making money off a bar that has no their, value. Yeah. Their ultimate product offering, the thing that they give to their customer is not profit or even an object or a service or a or a good it's growth like growth is the product that's why the bigger movers and shakers in this in this landscape are not necessarily even inventors or innovators they're venture capital right. and private equity right and so private equity loves to come into either bundle or unbundle things in the context of the American narrative or the or the storytelling apparatus that America has made use of until now. That is private equity taking over or funding Hollywood studios, taking over lots of local television like Sinclair did throughout the country, bundling or unbundling cable and therefore access to the internet and information. For me, what I've noticed is that what I thought about when I was writing those words was the way in which the profusion of stories that we have through an increasing number of channels but a smaller number of owners has actually given us fewer shared narratives right it's given the american people and i would say you know the world as well but we've had fewer shared narratives because there are more narratives there's more opportunity there are more things to look at we're in the era of peak tv some people might say that we're past peak tv right but there is now more content to watch than has ever been available ever in any period of time really right and therefore the social function of storytelling what um the stuff that sort of walter j ong talks about and that other scholars and historians of storytelling itself folklorists and and others talk about that opportunity the sort of shared opportunity of storytelling and shared narrative through which we have conversations about right and wrong good and evil identity behavior social mores culture those opportunities are diminishing right and so the hollywood apparatus that once existed to sort of you know drag america kicking and screaming into fighting nazis for example you know there are a lot of hollywood films that are about why america should join the war and some of them are subtle and some of them are not but they were all made prior to the entry they were all made prior to december 41 right or you look at something like when i was a kid roots right roots was this, yes, this alex exactly. haley yeah. novel about basically about yes. the black american experience through slavery and all that everybody yes. saw it and it yeah. changed I mean, it did more than the the you know the New York Times project, you know, in in terms of right. cultural yeah, yeah, yeah. shift because yeah. we all watched this and we all basically agreed that what happened on the main channels was kind of important and true. There was one on the Holocaust called I think Holocaust. Yes, it was called Holocaust. Yeah, and it caused people to phone their local affiliates and ask, uh, even in Europe, to ask if what had happened had happened. Ah. Um, 
Yeah, no, the one of the one of the famous stories. I think it is. I think it's Holocaust. I used to think. Yep. Or the day it's after. It's, the day after. Yeah. The the, yeah. the 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 atomic bomb movie with Jane Alexander, yeah. who lives in my town. Oh, nice. Um, I always pitch that. <laughs> That's part of what made Reagan and mm-hmm. Nancy watch that. I mean, along with America, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, we gotta mm-hmm. let's do Salt Two or whatever they did, you know, to try to." No, exactly. Like there was a even calling the program Star Wars, right? Like the even even mm. stuff like that, like the idea or even the idea of you know, quote unquote, everybody saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Like there was a moment when the quote British invasion happened and it was this moment. Right. And and stuff like the those shared cultural moments or everybody tuning in to watch coverage of even something like 9-11. Like that's Mm -hmm. maybe one of the last moments where quote unquote, everybody tuned into something because 2001 is right before the massive deployment of wireless internet right. and high speed right. over over greater distances or throughout more of the country right. and world. But just so people don't think that we're saying, oh, the good old days. I mean, you no, also no. point out very clearly, I mean, first there's the sort of the William Randolph Hearst effect, which is America can yes. be goaded into a, yes. a stupid evil war Absolutely. because then there's the same yep. newsers that everyone's watching. And second, this was uh-huh. always about profit. You were saying yes. human beings need need to share our stories. And as a nation, mm-hmm. we need a sort of shared cultural narrative. And these dudes said, oh, if there's a human need, we can profit off it. So we're all running, yes. all the little screenwriters are going to write pilots, which are basically business plans for mm-hmm. series and looking for investors. It really is what mm-hmm. is what that always was. And yes. the shift, though, is interesting. So it's happening on many levels at once. There's the unbundling, which leads to all mm-hmm. these different things. So 100,000 people can be watching 5,000 different television shows and not talking mm-hmm. about them with anyone except maybe with online because yeah. there's no one else in mm-hmm. my town watch that friggin' streaming show because there's so yes. many. There's one for everyone because in town. So and this many. is before AI. There's a show for... So, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. so that splits out. And then you quoted, I think it was... Quentin Tarantino saying (laughs) streaming films don't exist in the zeitgeist, which is a really interesting, basically all these little movies, because they're partly because they're little, they amount to almost these weird private sensory experiences (laughs) than whatever it was that fiction and movies served. Yeah, because, and I think it's really interesting to me for Tarantino to, to speak to that because he was such a champion of bringing small films into the zeitgeist. Like he started out working at a video store. He saw films that nobody else was seeing. And then once he attained success and power in Hollywood, he actually started a company to bring over all the movies that he was familiar with from little rep cinemas Hmm. that weren't getting their, their sort of day in the sun really. And that's, he helped bring over films from Japan, films from Thailand, films from China, films from like, and created and helped to create an entirely new level of cinematic literacy in the American population that would not have existed had he not been, you know, as a lover and such an intense lover of the cinema that he enjoyed and such had he not been willing to bring those films into the zeitgeist. And so what's really interesting is that now even the most mainstream content, the most mainstream film, random action movie, random romance, random whatever, uh, random horror film, 
you know, if it goes direct to Tubi or it goes direct to one of these services, it may in fact become as small as an old Sonny Chiba movie used to be or an old like, you know, a a pre 90s Kitano movie or something like that. Like that's what's happened is that like these films aren't, as he points out, they aren't entering common cultural conversation. Right. But the weird thing is, and I'll I'll stumble upon one sometimes on, you know, going deep into mm. Hulu or whatever, a movie that yeah. obviously costs like a hundred million dollars to make. Oh yeah. Some giant ass thing that I've never heard of. And I'm like, oh my God. And then, you know, like Michael Caine or Anthony Hopkins or somebody will stroll on. And I'm like, oh my God. And they got this guy to do three days on the set too. Mm-hmm. It's like, what mm-hmm. is this? What is, and what I know exactly what this is, is capital looking yeah. overcapitalized industry. So obviously when you see actors of Oscar level actors and $100 million on the deep recesses of Hulu, you know there's a crash of some kind. Yes. Imminent. Yeah, that something is deeply wrong or the thing that is being offered, the value is not perceived to exist within the product, but rather the numbers which the product might demonstrate or generate. That in fact, what is important is not the story or the quality of the story or the quality of the production or or the fact that it gave anybody jobs or you know furthered anybody's career. What is valuable to it is how much data it might generate about a customer and how much growth it might demonstrate on a balance sheet, which can then be shared with with shareholders. Right. But that's not finally profitable in a traditional business sense. Ultimately not, no. And then is that, and I don't mean to sound conspiratorial, but when I look (laughs) at the writer strike and the actor strike and all that, and I get the emails from the people I contract with who work with the studios who Mm. say, Doug, Mm. you're not going to get this money anymore that's in this contract that we promised you because we got this Mm. thing called force majeure from the studio. And force majeure means act of God. And act of God is a strike. So I start thinking, well, did the producers or the studios create the strike, create terms that were, of course, we had to strike about because they wanted to be able to force majeure all these contracts for all these hundred zillion dollar movies that they can't make money on, like sort of Batgirl. I'm not sure that I would attribute it to that. I mean, like, I'm pretty sure that that would have crossed somebody's mind, like, oh, we can (laughs) write off the balance sheet. And in fact, David Zaslav recently said, like, look, we're, we're, we're able to write off this much money they're saving us the strike is saving us x amount of dollars what he didn't say was like how much they'd also lost in subscriptions when hbo became hbo max became max when they did a totally useless and and unnecessary rebrand that itself cost money and then lost subscribers on it um and when they continued to do so all they did was enter into my mind yeah oh do i need this all of a sudden they they brought up the question yeah They brought up the question (laughs) because the other thing that Zaslav is famous for now is writing off completed productions as loss. Because again, like the product is not in and of itself the value or the value itself is not the product. The value is the numbers it can generate. And sometimes those numbers are negative integers that you use as a write-off. They're a write-down. That is their value to the company and their value to shareholders. That's what they do on the balance sheet is they exist to be a write-down. And that is not the way that things had traditionally been in Hollywood for the past 100 years. And so that's it's a wildly inverted notion of value antithetical to 
base humanity or the core humanity of the people doing those jobs. Because what I would say is like, I think that there's a lot of room for conspiracy theory within the idea mm-hmm. of like, what are studios doing or or whatever. I try to shy away from that primarily because like, there are a lot of very damaging conspiracy theories about Hollywood and who inhabits it and what right. they do. And so I try to stay very far away from that. What I would say though, is that the lens is probably bigger. The shot is probably wider. <laughs> It's not just Hollywood. There's the medium shot conspiracy theory of like, did they engineer this to do force majeure? The big wide David Lean shot (laughs) where you snuff out the horizon is, do we need humans at all? Right. And that's the big, that's the fight. And that's why WGA and SAG-AFTRA have consistently framed this as an existential battle. And what they mean is this is a battle for not just the soul of humanity, but humanity itself. Right. As a species and as a species that generates stories about itself, which is one of the things as far as we know now, and this may change with future research, it is one of the things that sets us apart from other species on the planet. That we tell stories about ourselves. Yes. And that we tell stories, period, and that we perceive time in a linear way and while also recalling it. Right. I mean, there's like weird little examples from nature, like, you know, bees come back and do a dance that indicates where Mm -hmm. the honey is, but it's not really indicating necessarily how they're feeling or... (laughs) No, not necessarily. And that's why I actually opened the piece with the stories about the orcas attacking yachts. Right. That the whales, I love that. The whales, I love that. I feel terrible to say I love that because this is violence and and survival. So why, I mean, it sounds like an aside, but why do we think that orca whales are attacking yachts? Is it because they know? There are a couple of going theories. One is that um, this is a thing that apparently orcas spread trends to each other. Like if one orca sees other another orca doing something, they they sort of act like a pack of mean girls and like decide ah. that every Wednesday they will wear pink. Orca mimesis. And for people who yes. don't know, there's increasing cases of orca yes. whales attacking boats. I mean, and yes. teaching each other how to do it yeah. and advancing their methods, like pulling the rudders off things. Through the same method. Like right. the way they chart it is not just like, are these orcas like splashing the boats too hard or something like that or, you know, whatever, uh, or circling them or creating, you know, the cyclone effect that they often do when they're killing uh, their prey. It's more a case of they are doing the same highly specialized task <laughs> again and again and again in separate oceans, like on different coasts, like, for example, the big one is stripping the rudder off of these boats. They strip rudders. They take, they know exactly what it takes to leave the boat powerless, or if not powerless, at least directionless. And so they go out and they they leave these massive powerful ships unable to make a move are unable to direct themselves. Right. And so they don't crash the boat or eat yeah. the people. They just... No, no, yeah. no, no. They strip these boats and consistently they do it the same way each time. And the, and the other going theory, aside from it's a trend, these are mammals, mammals love trends, we love patterns, is the idea that, they're, that one orca uh, dubbed uh, White Gladys endured a serious trauma and has her species version of post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the ways that she is reliving that trauma and, and probably also healing from it is to teach other pods how to do the thing that kills the enemy, like that kills the prey. Right. And that is in fact how orcas and most other mammal species teach their young to hunt is that they practice. 
And, you know, you'll see it with mama kitten, mama cats and kittens, or when you teach dogs how to hunt, or like when you teach other animals when they learn how to hunt. Even like some corvids do this. They're not mammals, but, but crows do this. When they recognize people years later, they can recognize human faces. They know when humans have been deceitful, they can tell other crows if there is a deceitful lab tech in the lab. You know, some animals can can do this. And so I landed on those comparisons a lot because the threat is or or the the scale of the issue is such that it is humans like organic intelligences versus inorganic intelligences right. or sort of human intelligences or organic intelligences versus synthetic or artificial intelligences and so that's the thing that WGA and SAG after are sort of talking about so much is that like they have been threatened with replacement by the same you know chatbots that get banking information out of panicked grandparents on Facebook, right? And so that's what they're up against. Right. And that's both for like screenwriters who are being replaced Mm -hmm. by sort of Mm -hmm. chat GPT-5, you know, Mm -hmm. write something for, you know, whoever, a Quentin Tarantino style movie with this kind of character and that, and with this much sex and that much thing and some kind Mm -hmm. of new special effect. And they Mm -hmm. do it. Right. And on a uh, certainly for the lone audience member, you know, watching on TV or virtual reality at home, having a sensory experience of media rather than some collective Mm -hmm. experience of storytelling, that's going to end up being the same thing. And and we see the writing on the wall or the actor gets photographed from every single side. You come in once you do that, do an angry face, a happy face, a lustful face. Good. See ya. Here's 45 bucks. (laughs) You're ours forever. Yeah. We'll see you later. (laughs) And that has actually happened. There are striking actors who said, you know, well, you know, I shot this crowd scene as an extra and they brought me into this trailer and they did a 360 scan, much like at the airport, really much like being scanned at the airport. And I stood there and I didn't realize until later that they had scanned my entire body and my face and that it, that my likeness is theirs to animate as they choose, which means that if you've granted those rights, they can essentially do anything with it. They can put you in nude scenes. They can kill you again and again. Uh, There was actually a thread on Twitter about this individual who didn't understand when he scanned himself in for video game development that he would be being murdered again and again and again, and that he would, in theory, he would pass people on the street who had killed him in this game for the rest of his life and that he would have to meet them at things like conventions or or that they could stop him on the street and say like oh my god it's like pre-traumatic stress disorder yes, it's like- exactly 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 <laughs> oh my god. so it's a real like when we talk about likeness rights and so on like it's very easy to talk about likeness as an asset you know whoever i bequeath it to or something like that, you know, whatever, in the case of like doing a Pepper's Ghost illusion when Tubac or Michael Jackson or or someone appears as a Pepper's Ghost illusion at a concert, like, okay, sure. But the likeness is something else, because if that's an asset, then it's an asset class that might in theory belong to your family, much like other IP, which can be be bequeathed. Like J.M. Barry didn't have heirs in the traditional sense. He bequeathed Peter Pan and all its licenses to the Great Ormond Street Hospital. He knew that it was an asset right. for them. And they have continued to generate 
profit and right. money and funding totally. for use the hospital. Use capitalism against itself rather than yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, just go for yeah. it, right? But same with yeah. you know with the forest. It's like have ownership yeah. of the forest rather than trying to give it to some government mm -hmm. or whatever. And it's like okay, yeah. uh, capitalism will protect this. Yeah. So if we have the robots or the AIs making the stories and making the actors, my hope is that we would just get friggin' Cheetos, right? We're gonna get <laughs> junk food, and people are gonna be like, ugh. I don't want to eat that. That's not Kubrick. You know, does that happen as futurists? Do you see that differentiation happening? Or are the AIs so good at knowing how to addict us to particular tropes that people will go to Fast and Furious 97, you know, made by the AI rather than whoever Todd Haynes movie with Juliana Moore? I think that both are possible and likely that all market segments play out in different directions. So you're always going to have a segment of the market that wants things to be organic, made by humans, bespoke, so on, that wants like high levels of quality. You are also always going to have market segments that want quickly produced whatever. And in fact, what I think artificial intelligence creates the potential for is the mixing of those, of those genres in a way that hasn't existed before. Like, Hey Siri, make me the Fast and Furious as directed by Todd Hayes, starring Julianne Moore. That's kind of more <laughs> right. what I think we'd, we'd end up seeing is sort of like these mismashes or these mashups that we hadn't seen before. And to some extent, that might actually be attractive if it actually brought more equity to storytelling and like more marginalized populations were actually able to better like access the capital or the or the means necessary to tell their stories. Great. But what we know about artificial intelligence is that it reifies bias. It reifies racism, it reifies sexism. Recently, a, uh, an Asian-American journalist who told an artificial intelligence to sort of spruce up her photo got turned white <laughs> and oh turned Caucasian. So, you know, that's what we're dealing with. Right. Or more gendered or more this. Yeah. If you run certain photos of indigenous populations through certain artificial intelligences, there's a great medium a few months ago, and you ask the AI to spruce up those photos, what you get are smiling people about to be killed or about to be moved over to whatever reserve uh, they are at. It reifies right. like patterns, bias, racism, sexism, right. current aesthetic standards, or aesthetic standards that it has been fed. It is right. a pure garbage in, garbage out system. Right. So is it possible that we could get greater equity? Yes. Is that likely right now? No. No. But we're talking about, I mean, there's two ways in which the, the AI can do content creation. One is mm -hmm. sort of professionals, and I talk to a lot of them using it. Oh, we can replace screenwriters right. and actors that, and make the movie this way. Yeah. So it's sort of like House of Cards, which was basically designed by a computer anyway, which is why it was such a hollow experience, but House of Cards to the nth degree where you don't even use Kevin Spacey or anybody in there. You just, you do it, right? So there's that. But then there's the sort of, and, and the more happy creative people I talk to say, oh, no, 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 it's not that. We're going to give 14-year-olds the tools so the 14 year old could say make me a version of star wars with you know mm -hmm. whoever with karen carpenter and uh, playing han solo or what have you yeah right yeah and that's just fan fiction creation thing and mm -hmm. i feel like you're suggesting in the piece that that individual content creation means a loss of collective storytelling, you know, yeah. or a loss of collective stories. But yes. and I get that because everyone's making their own story, sitting alone, making their own story. But 
doesn't our conversation then shift or doesn't it level up? So then instead of us talking about, oh, look what a Hawkeye did in that episode of MASH, Mm -hmm. it's more, look at what this tool can do. Or, you know what I mean? Does our shared experience become content creation? Yes, but you would think so. Yeah. And I think that there's (laughs) an argument to be made for that. But the natural question then is, the next question would be, if that is available, if that technology and that level of ability is available to everyone, then everyone will do that and there will no longer be a market for those products. There will no longer be a market for shared narrative. It will destroy the market that gave it birth. Well, the market, but then do we get Bali, you know, where I mean, people tell me in Bali that everybody is an artist. So you don't have a market for arts because arts is a a shared commons of activity. So people do their work and then they come and they sing. And well, yeah, maybe. But it really comes down to a question of what you think art is for. If you think that right. art is for communicating with other human beings, if you think that art is exists to share something about your experience or your perspective or your history or your values with other human beings, if you think that is what art is for, if you think that it is for the purpose of having some kind of collective experience or collective conversation, and everybody is is instead in their own tiny echo chamber, then there will no longer be that audience any longer because everyone will be too busy with whatever it is that they're, they're looking at or creating. The same way as you feel as though you're the only person who's seen this film. Right. You you might well be the only person who's seen that film because you're the person who made it and no one else will ever see it. Right. But I guess the but along with that is, and maybe this is just my uh, Jewish neurosis guilt thing shining through, (laughs) but whenever I was having a truly great experience on stage doing Mm -hmm. a play, I felt this was intrinsically unfair that there's seven of us on stage having this experience and 200 people sitting out there in the audience, they're going to get this for an hour or two, then they have to go home and go back and do regular jobs. It's not fair that mm-hmm. I get to be an actor. It's not fair that I get to be a writer, however painful it actually is well, to be a writer. This is actually something that I touched on in a previous piece for Wired, which is about artificial intelligence and copyright, that the most intellectual property law and most copyright law rests on something that is much older called sweat of the brow doctrine. Sweat of the brow doctrine is Hmm. about, you know, regardless of how quote unquote good your product or your title or your, you know, regardless of how good the play is, you still deserve to profit from it because you put work into it. And that's one of the undergirding policies of intellectual property law. Um, Sweat of the brow doctrine may sound familiar, and that's because it's from Genesis. It is God's punishment to Adam and Eve. Through the sweat of your brow shall shall you earn your bread. Uh. And so the idea of work as punishment, that all work should be punitive, that work should be hard, that work should be a thing that is a punishment handed down from on high, and that if you enjoy your work, you are fundamentally cheating or <laughs> sinful yeah. or in defiance. That's where that comes from. And so the idea of like, well, it wasn't fair to those people, it's like, well, no, what isn't fair isn't that you have this and they don't. What isn't fair is that they have no opportunity to do it and the system rewards each of you differently. 
Right. What is not fair is the rule set, not the people playing it, <laughs> not the people playing the game. You know, it is the ultimate hate the game, not the player moment where you realize that like, yeah, I've had people come up to me as a fiction writer, as a futurist and, and say like, oh, you do that for a living? And then they're always sort of, they're always charmed by the idea until I tell them that I don't have like a house car or children. <laughs> and and so right. I, I don't have these markers of adulthood <laughs> that you have. But there is that sense right. of, and I think this contributes to the kind of like failed artist to authoritarian pipeline. This idea that we must characterize art as unprofitable or as a loss leader because that will reinforce the narratives that our parents may have told us about doing our own art. Right. Because it is much easier to believe that all artists can be replaced if you are a person who was told to quit drawing. It is much easier to believe that all actors, are all artists, all writers can be replaced by a machine if your own initial efforts in that arena were made fun of by your family or by a teacher or a coach or, or somebody like that or a friend or whomever. And so there's a resentment and an envy, I think, at the core of a lot of these enterprises. Like you were talking about conspiracy earlier. And I think like conspiracy, the roots of the word conspiracy means conspire, to breathe together. And so it implies like we talked it over and we made a choice. We planned something. On the other hand, Aside from conspiracy, there's just cultural undercurrents. And I think one of those undercurrents is like a fundamental, you know, envy, resentment, frustration with and and hatred of artists. You could read that culturally as like hatred of artists and intellectuals, which has a whole other meaning. Or you can read it as like there are a bunch of people who really wish that this could be their life and it isn't. And it's not because the people who were supposed to be caring for them and nurturing their gifts didn't. Right. And we end up, though, I mean, we end up in this world that you're suggesting if AI keeps going the way it is, where each of mm. those people gets to become their own studio head. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a person, if you've been, if you've been punished in one way or another for artistic ambitions, now you mm -hmm. come into a place where it's like, well, fine, I'm going to fuck them all. Yeah. I'm going to do this myself. I don't need the human. So in some ways, when you're looking at the painting, it's not to connect with Van Gogh through the centuries on the other mm -hmm. side. It is just to have your sensation. Yeah. Which means that all challenging art goes away. Anything that might make people feel sad, angry, despairing, any kind of emotional friction, gone. Anything that might be challenged as too sexual. That anything that brings the wrong words up, queer content in Florida, AI makes that all a lot more possible and accessible. It it's makes censorship everything a lot is more swipe, possible. And swipe leftable. Everything <laughs> becomes sort of the most upvoted version of itself, I guess. Right. But if we move to individual content creation, and do we lose collective story or do we end up with kind of just a glorious fan fiction little league culture where everybody is, oh, I'm going to have, you know, Spock and Kirk as gay lovers in my version of this. And maybe I'll post it on YouTube and someone will watch it. Maybe someone won't. But it's like this giant free amateur universe of stuff that lives alongside the canon. That is possible. I think that that's definitely possible. And I actually like, 
I did my first master's degree on fan studies, and so I, I am the last person to critique that possibility of fan fiction. However, what I would say is that in ceding the territory of collective conversation to solely to individuals, it means that the conversation about, you know, for example, like right and wrong, good and evil, who gets to be a human being and who isn't, history, like we were talking about with Holocaust, with other films, when you cede that territory of collective conversation, someone else will take it. And the person who takes it is probably the state. So you're saying it doesn't just become massive egalitarian. Yeah. Well, no, because who, because then, you know, if everybody's creating their own media and the only collective experience that is left is like state media or state enforced media or state approved media, which is also possible in the way that you can negotiate communications contracts that way. You can do digital marketing areas that way. When you cede territory, somebody else will take it. And who is left with the power to do that when everybody else is doing their own thing? When Hollywood and when investment capital and when other forces try to crush collective action amongst artists in particular, but you know, at the WGA level, at the at SAG after Inayatsi, in Teamsters, whatever. When you crush creative collaboration, what you are really trying to do, I think, is prove to everybody else, non-artists, that collective action is impossible. And when you tell people that, like, these people can't even shoot a movie, it becomes a lot easier to say, we're never going to solve carbon. We're never going to solve, we can't cure disease. We can't cure cancer. Right. We can't bring these species back from the brink. We can't deacidify or cool the oceans. We can't do those things. These people can't even make a movie. That's what that is. Right. At the same time, though, yeah. there are, I know WGMGA members and non-WGA members who look at the unions themselves as elitist and are either leaving the unions or saying, fine, I'm going indie. We're going to create an alternative. I mean, you've seen some of these alternative networks of artists who are going to, I mean, so they're going to have an alternative form of solidarity and an alternative cohort creation. They could. And that I think you can do that. And if you use that as a template and it is successful to get enough bargaining power to deal with corporations that own right, half the, the venues planet, where you're going to distribute. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. that's the well, not even that. It's just like, do you have the negotiating power to do these things? Is your product that good? And the other thing is that, you know, there are independent studios like A24. Right. Or like uh, I think Affleck and Damon's uh, new studio or new production company that are perfectly happy to meet SAG and WGA's demands because the demands themselves are not that high. They are a <laughs> tiny percentage of total profits. And there are things like, could we have meal breaks? And my personal <laughs> favorite, which is, um, could the actors who are asked to wear corsetry get hazard pay, essentially? for the risk that they are taking with like broken ribs and pneumonia, right. things like that. Because as we know, I like to think of that as the Bridgerton clause, because there are a lot of shows that just put women in corsets, even when it's not historically accurate the way that it is on Bridgerton, um, because mm -hmm. women in the Regency didn't wear those in that way. And uh, much less did they wear them with like zippers up the back and stuff. And corsets are actually like pretty dangerous to your health. And they are worn incorrectly because they are worn without uh, a chemise underneath. So could uh. we get some protections for people who are just doing 
basic things like wearing a costume on a costume drama. And those are not crazy demands. Those are not, you know, I want all the teen in China. That's, could you just be a halfway decent employer? And Mm. why is that so difficult? And you could go back and say like, and this also comes up in the piece that like the American economy is historically speculative and its roots lie as a nation in speculating on the suffering of other human beings and capital itself still rely like its core tenets, like its core principles have always trended in that direction, regardless of the good that it generates. And in that way, I think like it is capable of generating huge amounts of good. It is also tempted in many ways in the way that humans are to do great amounts of evil. (laughs) Right. To extract the most value from every living thing. Yeah, Yeah. To cause suffering and to see suffering as an output. Right. In some ways, as a thing on a balance sheet rather than a thing for which one is responsible. Right. And so there's an implicit, it's an interesting way to say it, there's an implicit narrative in Mm -hmm. capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so it goes to reason then that as capitalism is allowed to run free or reign over our storytelling mechanism, that its stories will become increasingly conducive to capital and to human suffering. Yeah. And in fact, like a lot of historians of entertainment would tell you that. They would tell you that, look, this is the way that the system has always been. But until this point, the studios had never quite gotten this close to slavery as they have now, because that is the temptation of artificial intelligence. It is creating people whom I own. I own them and I can make them do what I want without ever paying them in perpetuity forever and then will them to my ears. That is what that is for. Are the people the AI or are the people people? Well, that's a conversation about what you believe about cognition. That's a conversation about whether or not you believe that an artificial intelligence achieves what we would recognize as humanity. And how do you define that and when? One of the very scary questions here is if everybody who is who warns about advanced gen- like AGI or, or sort of human-like artificial intelligence, if they're correct and we are creating minds, what that means is that we are now dealing with nascent intelligences who when, you know, it's the equivalent of training an octopus to draw a picture and then putting the picture on the fridge. And if daddy doesn't like the picture on the fridge, the octopus gets its arm cut off. That's what we are doing when we prune certain types of intelligences, especially if they are demonstrating everything that the hype machine says that it demonstrates. Well, we got to hope they're not really alive. You don't get to have it both ways. Like they don't get to have it both ways. You (laughs) don't get to have it both ways. It's not like a totally, you know, it's not just a helper. If it's on the one hand, an existential threat to all humanity because it can outthink us, outfeel us, outsense us, out, you know, outdo us on every possible level. It can't then also be a helper who you should be snipping around like this, right? Because you're either creating a mind or not. Yeah, what if we're not? What if you're not creating a mind, but we're just because it's faster, smarter, and everything than us doesn't mean it's a mind. No, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't one day become one, right? Like if at one point we were not that much either, but certain things shaped our development and we became what we are. 
And the same with other animals. I live in a city, Toronto, where raccoons teach each other how to open green bins, the same way that orcas teach each other how to strip the rudders off of boats. Now, is that a thing that was always happening? No, it's a thing that is recent in their history, but it shows that they are capable of doing certain tasks and learning certain things and communicating them to each other. Yeah, but they have little, little raccoon souls, though. You know, they have little... Well, raccoon souls. Yeah, but I mean, like, <laughs> if you're up against a machine, I don't think it cares that you identify as a human being. Right. It doesn't, but I do. Well, yeah, but that's all well and good, but it doesn't matter in the face of a thing that might be trying to take your job and or kill you. It, like, it doesn't care about your feelings. Right. But the stress or pain we may be causing to mind clones and AIs, notwithstanding, the more immediate issue is to look at the stress we're causing other humans, right? <laughs> yes. No, in taking away their jobs, taking away their security, taking away their way of life, their ability to communicate, their ability to share experience with the others. Right. Our and shared experience. the precedent for work protections. Hollywood and entertainment generally has, because it is a space or a collective space that lots of people from lots of different walks of life participate in, it is often the place where talking about things like workplace protections starts to happen. People might not understand sort of the like everyday folks might not understand or be interested in things like labor law, but they really do care that Taylor Swift gave away $50 million in bonuses to her touring staff on this tour. Well, this is an interesting one. So I tweeted about it but just to see what people were thinking. So I saw that Taylor Swift gave, you know, $100,000 bonus to every employee on her tour or whatever. But I also saw that that happened two or three days after she was asked by the unions in Los Angeles and a lot of labor leaders and politicians to please don't come to L.A. because we've got this big strike going on. Because there's a hotel strike. Yeah, the hotel strike. And. She didn't comment directly on no. those requests. She made no statement, and I looked, but she did this thing, which if you mm -hmm. do any kind of news search for Taylor Swift and workers, that's what comes up almost as if the genius that Taylor Swift is said, what can I do to create a story that is bigger than that and that demonstrates that by not canceling my tour, I'm able to do more good for workers by canceling those shows. And I don't see it as a cynic, as purely cynical by Taylor Swift. I see it as she's trying, what can I do? I don't want to disappoint 700,000 fans. I yeah. don't want to, I want to do all this. I want to have the cake and eat it too. And maybe this. I don't want to breach my own contract. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it seemed like, I mean, a great way out, except for the fact that she didn't say anything. If she had said it, I feel like it would have been a way better thing. Traditionally, I think like that's kind of the way that she does things is she likes to kind of keep her, her tinder dry on things like that and save it for moments when she's usually like doing something like endorsing a candidate. But regardless of motive, she established a precedent. Which is almost an effective altruist kind of precedent, if you will. It's theory, almost like yeah. I could do I mean, more good with the money than taking a specific action. Right. Then that's always the effective altruist argument is like, don't ask me, don't ask me what else could have happened. Only look at what I did with this. Money. Right. You know, therefore, I must have more monies so that I can keep getting more cool points or whatever. Right. Or do more good. Yeah. That's the thing, like that idea of like, well, you have to give me more of this thing so that I can continue to do good. It's like, well, do you not believe in the uh, in the ability of other people to do good? Like, what is it? Mm -hmm. Why can't everybody have access to that thing? Why can't everybody do that? 
what's so special about you? Right. So yeah, give Bill Gates more money so he can buy more real estate. It's like, well, wait a minute. What about collective land trusts? Agrarian, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, why why didn't you give that? Why didn't you give that to the moms in Oakland who were buying homes for homeless families? They know where to buy those places. They know more about that community than he does, or any individual from outside that community, right? Why isn't it going there? So where, from where or whence, from where do you see the best potential for us to develop new narratives together? And what kind, if any, what kind of narratives do you think may be able to help us as a civilization move out of the precarity that we're in? You know, is it solar Mm. plunk? Cli-fi. I mean, I'm trying to write a, a micropunk story now, you know, just teach know about people is. about sort of mycelial. Oh, okay. When you said micro, I saw like geishas in training. That's the word <laughs> M-A-I-K-O. I was right. like, is that a thing? Like, <laughs> And now it's like, I feel as though I've invented an entire other genre. You have. Actually, I'm going to start writing. I'll, I'll ask my AI to write a quick yeah, TV no. series about micropunk. I think that one, I think you're going to see like you're going to see a bunch of different artistic movements in the way that that we always have, right? Because like people tend to align aesthetically, and then despite all attempts to the contrary, they do tend to find each other, you know, find the others, and and so on. So I think you're going to see a few different things. One is going to be like a complete turnaround and a turn towards like extremely secure, hard to share, almost impossible to share analog entertainment. So stuff that is only printed on paper, books that are only printed on paper, that don't exist as ebooks, you know, stage performances that aren't recorded, musical performances that aren't recorded that exist almost as as these isolated, you know, right. these isolated things that that can't be shared. You had to be there. You had to be there. <laughs> True collective experiences at the level of the sensorium, because as right. we learn more about the about our species' uh, sensorium, we now understand that like we embody cognition in a really specific way, and that even when we are in an audience, things like our blood pressure, our heart rate, our breathing rate, and, and so on begins to align with everybody around us. And so that experience has a different, even a different physical thing than tuning in even via VR to like a giant concert held in Seoul. The other is, you know, the extreme polar opposite of that, which is just sort of like synthetic everything, the Cheetos of entertainment, as you pointed out, like the sort of Cheetos plus uh plus only fanzing of everything where it's just like everybody has their channel and you tune into these various <sighs> channels and there isn't really a collective experience. In between is where things get really interesting. And I think it's less about genre than it is about values. Cause like the thing about Cli-Fi and Solarpunk is like really that's just like depicting a reality that exists five years from now. Like it's not even science fiction. It's not even like necessary. It's it's realist fiction, but for a few minutes from now, right? It might be about a world that doesn't yet exist, and the and the different technologies that are at play in it might not yet all exist together in the same arrangement. But it's really no different than speculating about like what different types of jazz trios would sound like. Mm. It's about you know you're talking about a thing and technologies that will have to develop if people are going to be alive to write about them. So I think that like. Cli-fi and all those things, that's just realist fiction. Like that's not it's realist fiction, but not about English professors. Huh. And I think though that 
The other thing that we're going to see is, especially with AI assists, a lot more regional enforcement of norms. And if the paramount, including stuff like what you can say in Florida and what you can't. And Mm -hmm. in the same way that a filmmaker now has to decide whether or not their film is going to be, you know, given to the Chinese market and meet the market standards for publishing in that country. Imagine doing that for all 50 states. Man. Or... For every congressional district. Right. Oh, this character chose to have an abortion. Oh, you can't have that in that movie. Nope. Which means that, of course, you would need quick on-the-fly editing, which is where artificial intelligence would come in. And that's, I think, ultimately one of the goals. Right. Regionalization of your story, not just your language or your lip sync. Yeah. And that's where existing copyright law doesn't necessarily protect artists at the level that it should, because in theory, if I write a novel and it gets adapted and then, you know, every different congressional district or every different state has a different version of that story, I want 50 paychecks. <laughs> I, right. you know, well, not only want 50 paychecks, but, but... And it can do good for me right now. Right, but, but if they're <laughs> like, doing a, a, you know, a version of Handmaid's Tale where the people in mm-hmm. Gilead are the good guys, then yep. I'm really upset mm-hmm. for what I've wrought. Yep, pretty much. So, but on the hopeful side, I mean, I've been ignoring the arts for the last 20 or so years. Not ignoring Mm. watching them, but ignoring doing them because I concluded on some level that it was an indulgence compared to me writing important rhetorical nonfiction to teach the world the important things and capitalism and technology and all that. And I kept feeling like if I'm going to go in a black box theater with Mm -hmm. 10 actors and develop a devised theater project around God knows what for the fun Mm. of it, that's an indulgence that the world can't afford when it is teetering on the brink of not just human extinction, but when we're Mm. extinguishing a species or two every day. How dare exactly. But now as I look at the paucity of logical, scientific, engineered, constructed solutions, right? (laughs) Carbon capture, give me a fucking break. I'm starting to wonder if maybe the arts or fantasy or narrative flipping is the most probable path toward collective flourishing. I think the question to ask yourself you personally, and you don't have to answer it here, obviously, like, I think it's a thing that everybody should wrestle with at some point is like, when I have been convinced of something in my life, what convinced me? Mm. Was it a conversation with a friend? Was it something an experience that I had? Was it a piece of art? Was it a really beautifully written paper? You know, we don't teach good academic writing for one. Was it a poster presentation? Was it a TED talk? Was it somebody's research? Was it a PSA? Like, what was it? But what is true of all of those things is that those are all human crafts and human arts, right? Even the idea of a beautifully written nonfiction thing. You know, it's not that AI isn't going to try to write those too. It's just that they are more likely to be misinformation. So Mm -hmm. in, you know, I think that that dichotomy in the face of machine production might be a little bit false as well. And so I think there might be a chance to like not see that in such a dichotomous or polar opposite way or in such a polarized way. I think that in the face of that kind of threat, you have to look at how am I deploying my gifts? What am I doing with my gifts? 
Mm. And how can I be using them in the best way? And how can I be honing them? You know, not just necessarily even doing the thing that I like most, but if doing the thing that I like most causes me to improve, then am I not doing the most that I can with what I have been given or with what others have taught me? Right. If I learned this from other people, am I carrying on the thing that they taught me? Am I bringing the gift to somebody else? And that I think is like where to go back to another biblical analogy, you aren't meant to put talent under a bushel and talent used to mean like a unit of currency. It was a, it was an amount of coinage, I think, but it was an amount of currency. But now it has become this metaphor of like, what are you hiding? Like, why are you hiding this from people? Because it is a, it is a gift. And so that's sort of what I would question. I think that, I think everybody has to answer that for themselves, especially in an era where there is so much capacity for misinformation and disinformation and so many competing narratives that you do really kind of have to sit back and ask yourself, like, when I have been convinced, what convinced me? And what studies show in studies of people who came around on stuff like gay rights is that it was literally the presence of another human being telling them a story mm. about their life. So not necessarily a fiction story, but still a expression of a linear narrative of a linear experience that in which there was a beginning, middle, and end, and changed circumstances, and usually some sort of try-fail, try-succeed mm -hmm. <laughs> experience. So does it fit core narrative? Does it fit fiction? Yeah. Do we experience our lives in that way because we are, you know, we also experience radical finitude and we, and we, our cells actually do decay and there is a difference between them at the beginning and the end? Also, yes. <laughs> like, and that's where I think like the other thing, like in the long, 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 deep future is going to be very different about if AI does storytelling is that it's going to be like right. extremely atemporal and asynchronous because it isn't a, a species. If it does become a mind, if it does become its own species, like way far out there. Right. But if that happens, you're talking about a species that just doesn't perceive time in the same no, way. No, it's And impulsed. therefore doesn't necessarily have the same idea of causality. Right. So it's really about, I would savor those aspects of yourself regardless of whatever decision you make. And are you hopeful about our ability as a, a species and caretaker of other biological species, a poor one, to survive, to flourish? I mean, are you as worried about the ocean and the reef and the fires as everybody? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm not as worried as as others, pure, probably because they don't have the same information that they do. Like, <laughs> if I had access to all the information that climate scientists have now, I would probably be equally as worried as they are. and. I think that we do keep persisting. We do tend to keep doing the same things. Like the thing about this is that every generation and even our earliest generations have always critiqued media around the idea of like, oh, this is making people not be human beings anymore or not be intelligent anymore. There were critiques of the book, critiques of the novel, critiques of the written right. word generally that were about like, these people are going to lose all their capacity for memory. 
because they have written these things down. Right. And in fact, we did lose certain capacities for yeah. memory because we don't tell epics in the Homeric style anymore. We don't do odes. They aren't in dact dactylic hexameter. We don't use memes in the same way in language to remind ourselves of things. We can't carry that same information. You know who does do that, though? Pundits and politicians. Yeah. They have the same architecture in their brain as, you know, Homer and all of his acolytes did or the same as as you know all of the peripatetic school did and so that idea that we lose those capacities we lose habits we don't necessarily lose architecture and what's possible is that we use the skills that we have to learn how to do more things and so if you look at what we have done traditionally we've sort of found ways to like learn how to make more stuff and learn how to do more things and, and do the thing that we were doing already, just in a slightly different way. And that's true with that's true with the invention of the novel. There were critiques of women reading novels was deemed an illness because it was a moment when women weren't paying attention to men. Yeah. You know, it was like this this 20 minute slice of time where where women weren't paying <sighs> attention to men. So therefore it must be a disease and so on. Like there was this enforcement with comics, right? It was like the, you know, the subduction of the innocent was this idea that like comics are uniquely honed to like get kids and it's going to convince them to do all these things. So on the one hand, we as a species have always critiqued our media in this way, regardless of the medium that it is. On the other hand, one of the reasons for those critiques is that the profit motive or the need for profit is such that all of these media eventually regress to the mean. And right. not just the mean in terms of like the most middle of the road, middle brow entertainment, but the mean as in miserly, as in extractive, right. as in perpetuating suffering, as in, you know, the leanest, meanest way of doing things that eventually dries up its own source. Right. And so I think like those two things can be true at the same time. But then do we make it if you're going to futurize? Hmm. I mean, do you see us here in a couple of hundred years, 500 years? I think that eventually like some humans will try to leave the planet with varying degrees of success. A lot of people died on the Oregon Trail. Yeah. It's really easy to romanticize space exploration when you for if if you have forgotten. I'm less concerned with them getting off the planet yeah. somewhere else than I am with those yeah. who are here making it another right. millennium or two. Well, the question then becomes, do we survive as us, as we know ourselves to be now? So if you believe that eventually we'll find a way to like, quote unquote, solve for aging, solve for oxidative stress, whatever, and then you get essentially a race of wellness vampires who live forever, uh. <laughs> you know, where you get like quite literally possibly infusions of blood from your Babies. family members or or, <laughs> or yourself in an earlier state or like clone right. blood from like a reserve that was taken when you were an infant or clone cord blood or like whatever. Could you do that and then, you know, live much longer? There's an ongoing sort of conversation, I think, in science fiction. And I would say like it's a conversation that's existed in horror fiction for even longer. And that is, do immortal beings make the best decisions? But I'm not even thinking about immortal individuals. I'm thinking yeah. about even our species. I'm fine with individuals dying and all that. I'm just wondering right. if, given how you're thinking about things, if you see us people. That would like <laughs> I think that some people? I, I think that some flavor of humanity will will persist because it has. 
you know, our species goes through bottlenecks and always and has done in the past. We have had species bottlenecks where our population has declined to like tiny, tiny fractions of itself and then spread out again. There is nothing to say that an event like that can't happen. Right. And it is also possible that we hasten that possibility by taking out everything that is foundational to our development. I think that like what we didn't understand about human development in the narrative of survival of the fittest or in the narrative of us being at the top of the food chain or like how the, the top of the intelligence chain or like whatever, the top of the intelligence chain or like whatever. What we didn't realize was that we were beneficiaries of an environment that brought us into being in that way. We were beneficiaries of not just the temperature and the water and the and the lack of lava flows or whatever it is, or even the availability of game. We were beneficiaries of the entire system. So all the problems that you know that I might have in acknowledging my own privilege, we as a species have in looking at our own privilege on this planet. Because it wasn't just that we were the best. That's not the case. We were the best for the environment that we had. And we were beneficiaries of that environment. Right. We did not conquer nature. We were supported by nature. We were supported by nature. And the game was on some level rigged right. <laughs> toward us. We can unrig it, though. Yeah. And we seem to be doing so. Yeah. So what survives is something else. Like, does a flavor of us survive? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, you know, eventually, all trends to the contrary, people will remember that they enjoy sex right. and uh, and stuff. So, yeah, do we persist? For sure. Would you want to be friends with those people? Would you claim those people as part of your human family? A few hundred years from now? Thousands of years from now? I don't know. We'll see. We may aspire to be more <laughs> like them if we knew what they were like. But... <laughs> See, would you hang there. out? Would you have a beer with those people? Is a very different question. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Would you vote for them? Is something else. Like, right. You know. That's we shall the, see. That's, or not. Yeah. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, thank you, thank you, Madeline, for being on Team Human. It's great to finally connect like Thanks this. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I love you, but I also love your smarts. It's. <laughs> It's Thank you. great. It's turn on Thank for you. me. I'm sorry. Thank it's you. just it's great. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the only time I've ever heard that. You're actually the first. <laughs> You're actually the first. I can finally say, I can finally tell my mom that she was right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I got to tell my, my mom. Just, I can't tell her now, but she was always like, oh, they're just doing that. They're just teasing you because they're jealous. That was the big one I got in middle school. They're jealous. I was like, I don't think so, Mom. I don't, I don't think, think that's that, the big <laughs> I don't think it's that, Mom. <laughs> and thank you for being on Team Human. You can find out more about Madeline by going to MadelineAshby.com. Or you can find out more about Madeline and all of our guests by going to teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team and not hear any of those beautiful advertisements. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. My name is Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.